take your Bible this afternoon and please open to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. We've been going through 2 Corinthians. We're going to pause 2 Corinthians as we prepare for the Lord's table today. Uh, we're going to look at the story of a man who ate at the king's table. I'm going to read this passage, and then as we go through the uh, sermon, I want to uh, go through the sermon as if you are Mephibosheth, the character in the story. So I just let you know ahead of time uh, so that you understand and can follow along. Let's read 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all, to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son, whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you're Word says through the Apostle Paul 
that these things that were written in former times in the Old Testament were written for our instruction, your church today, so that we, through the encouragement of the scriptures, might have hope. Help us to learn from these things written long ago. Help us to have hope. Help us to see our Lord Jesus Christ. We need your Holy Spirit to give us attention and to draw our hearts closer to you in worship. We pray that you'll do this. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, your name is Mephibosheth. How do you like that name? This is your name. You live in a small town in northeast Israel called Lodabar. Uh, it's near the Sea of Galilee, across from the Jordan River, in the backwaters, the middle of nowhere, trying to mind your own business. You can't do much because, according to 2 Samuel 4, someone dropped you when you were a little kid. When you were just five years old, your grandfather Saul was killed, your father Jonathan was killed, and so your nanny ran for her life and she took you to try to protect you. And as she was running, uh, trying to carry you away, either she fell and she fell on top of you, or she might have dropped you, but either way, you fell and your legs, your feet were crushed. They were badly broken. And so you, Mephibosheth, are disabled. You are a cripple. You've been crippled since you were five years old. And it's been about 15 or 20 years now since the previous king, Saul, died, who, again, was your grandfather. But after all of this political upheaval, when the king died, when the king's heir, your father, Jonathan, also died, things now, after 15 or 20 years, are starting to settle down. Things are starting to be calm in this country. The new king is named David, and he's been around for a while. He's starting to establish himself, trying to bring peace to the nation. And so by this point, any potential rivals to David's throne have now been dealt with. Jonathan would have been the heir, but he died in the battle. And your uncle, Jonathan's brother, his name was Ishbosheth, he has also been killed. So there aren't any rivals from the inside to try to take David's throne. So everybody knows David is king. And so after dealing with all of these issues of the rivals, David has moved his throne from a little town in Hebron to Jerusalem. And in 2 Samuel 5, he has made Jerusalem the capital city. And he has called it Zion. This is the place where God is going to dwell. David has, dwelt, has dealt with some uh, potential enemies. The thorn in the side perpetually for Israel was the Philistines. And he has dealt with them and put them away so they're no longer a threat. And after defeating the Philistines, King David has brought the Ark of God into Jerusalem. And now he is reinstituting worship of God, the true Lord, in Jerusalem. And after that, in chapter 7... God made a special covenant with David 
and promised your king David that there would never lack a man on the throne of Israel forever from David's family. And then most recently, as you can read in 2 Samuel 8, David has dealt with more and more enemies that are surrounding Israel. He has put down the Moabites, the Syrians, the Edomites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. So things are good for the nation. Things are good for King David. As verse 15 of chapter 8 says, David reigned over all Israel, and he administered justice and equity to all his people. These are the golden years for David. But you, Mephibosheth, you're the one descendant left of the old king, King Saul. And so your job in Lodabar is to stay out of sight. Keep your head down. Keep a low profile. Don't cause any trouble because who knows what might happen. So here you are and without your knowledge, as you're over there in Lodabar, this little town, over in Jerusalem in the palace of David, a thought occurs to King David. And you don't know this. I didn't get that. I was afraid that would happen one day. <laughs> that was my greatest fear of that happening. Uh, and you don't, know, you don't know this, that this thought is occurring to David. In verse 1, chapter 9, David says, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness? For Jonathan's sake. Kindness. He wants to show someone kindness. Now that's not how things work when you are a king. There's a story many years after King Saul. This is 1500 AD. When Queen Elizabeth becomes Queen of England. And Mary, Queen of Scots, is queen over in Scotland. And... Queen Elizabeth is afraid of Mary, and so she puts Mary into prison for 18 years. But then after 18 years, Mary decides she wants to try to kill Queen Elizabeth. And so, Queen Elizabeth executes Queen Mary. This is normal stuff. This is what kings and queens do. If there's a rival to the throne, or a potential rival, if there's someone from the house, the family of a previous king, what you do is you execute that family member. And so here's Saul. Saul is the villain of the story. Saul is Darth Vader. He's the Joker. He's the bad guy. Some of the Psalms of David that talk about how he is being persecuted by ruthless men and he's facing the most difficult times in his life, these are about Saul. Saul is the villain. And so, in verse 1, you expect the question to be, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may get rid of him, execute him, to finally have full peace on the throne? But instead he says, is there anyone left so that I may show kindness to him? 
And notice he doesn't ask, is there anyone left from Jonathan's family? Because Jonathan was David's friend. But he says, anyone from Saul's family? Because even though Saul is the villain and Saul is the enemy, because of Jonathan, he will show kindness to someone who's not even one of Jonathan's children. So we'll come back to this kindness in a minute. David asks the question, and somebody says, verse 2, well, there's this guy named Ziba. Ziba is the caretaker of the estate of Saul. He is the manager or the steward for King Saul's estate. He's still around. He might know. Let's ask Ziba. Bring Ziba here. So Ziba comes, verse 2, and he says, are you Ziba? He says, at your service. Ziba has no idea what's going on. What does David want? All he knows is Saul and David are arch enemies. What is David about to take away from me? Who knows how this is going to go? But he says, I am your servant. And the king repeats the question in verse 3. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, the kindness of God to him? And Ziba answers. There's one more guy. There's one person that we know of left from Saul's family. He's a cripple. He's a cripple. See, they know your name, Mephibosheth. But it's not until verse 6 that anyone ever says your name or mentions your name. Not even the writer of the story says your name until verse 6. You're just the cripple. That's how people know you. That's how people think about you. Just another cripple. You're useless. You can't work. In their society, a cripple has not much value. He's of the lowest of the low because there's not anything that he can do. He just has to have people always attending to him, always helping him. They don't even have wheelchairs back then. So he can't do any work. He's only being taken care of by others for his entire life. So he's the lowest of society. And all that you are known as is the cripple. David says, where is he? Verse Ziba says he's in the house of Makir, son of Amiel, at Lodabar. So there you are. You're Mephibosheth. You're sitting in your house in Lodabar one day. You're not doing much. And knock, knock on the door, verse 5, some officers show up. King David has sent some soldiers or some officers to summon you. And when king's officers come to your door, they are not giving you an invitation. This is not a request. This is a subpoena. This is an order. You are coming to see the king. There's an event that's going to happen in a couple chapters. In 2 Samuel 11, about a woman named Bathsheba. And it says basically the same thing. That David sees this woman Bathsheba and he sends his men to go and take her. Not an invitation. Not a request. You are coming to see the king. And when the prophet of God, Nathaniel, interprets that story with a parable, he uses an illustration of a man who takes a lamb from a poor man. A rich man who steals a lamb. And so this is what this word means. The, the soldiers of the king, the officers, they are coming to take you Mephibosheth, you don't have 
a choice. You don't get any say because the king has all power. Now they haven't told you why. They just say, time to go to the king, and they take you to the king. So there you are in verse 6. You come to David. You are scared out of your wits. Because remember, the most recent events have been David getting rid of all his rivals on the throne. You're the only one left of the house of Saul. And so, smart guy that you are, as soon as you come into the king's house, you, his presence, you fall on your face and you pay homage. You bow down as low as you can. You show your submission to the king. You're going to do nothing and say nothing to upset the king because you know that as you are there laying on the ground prostrate, that all the king has to do is make a hand motion and they will come and cut off your head. So you better not upset the king. You better not talk back. You do what he says. You lay there on the floor. And you hear David say, Mephibosheth. He knows my name. Mephibosheth. What does he want? So you say, I'm your servant. At your service. Yes, whatever you say. Don't put up a fight. What's the king going to say next? Before we get to the next part of the story, let's pause here and ask ourselves here today, how are you like Mephibosheth so far in this story? Well, we are a lot like him. First of all, we too are children of the enemy. Not only are we children of our father, the devil, we are under the sway of the prince of the power of the air. We are also children of Adam. Each one of us comes from Adam. And our father, Adam, was morally upright. He was good, morally speaking, but he became crooked. He deviated from the straight path of goodness and righteousness that he was intended to live at. And so, as a result of Adam's actions, our father, we are now born into this condition of being crooked. We experience, obviously, effects of the fall on our physical world. We are sick. We do die. We are disabled. But even if we are not physically disabled all the time, we are spiritually crooked. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We are crooked people. Deuteronomy 32 verse 5 says, we are a crooked and twisted generation. Proverbs 21 verse 8 says, sin is crookedness. The way of the crooked is guilty. And so we not only go off on the crooked path. We don't stay on the straight path, but we ourselves are crooked people. We are broken. We are messed up. We choose wrong over right. We choose sin, even when we know that sin doesn't make us happy. It makes us miserable over and over and over again, and yet we are constantly choosing the very thing that we know is making us miserable, the thing that we know makes us sick, and hurts us. 
Why do we do that? Because our hearts are so broken. Our hearts are so crooked and twisted, morally speaking. Mephibosheth is known just as the cripple. And so we, we're not just people who sometimes do crooked things. We are crippled people. It is in our nature. And as Ecclesiastes 1.15 says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. Just like Mephibosheth could do nothing to fix his problem. He could do nothing to ever help himself. He was continually for the rest of his life at the mercy of other people because he cannot help himself in the same way we can't fix this problem of our moral crookedness. And just like Mephibosheth, we are summoned to the presence of the king. We aren't able to turn down the orders. We aren't able to RSVP no. We can't hide in the cave and wish that the king would just leave us alone. The king demands that we appear before him and no one will be able to avoid it. The Bible says the father has given all judgment to the son and that one day the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and they will come out. When your body is there laying in the tomb, you won't say, let me sleep a little longer. You will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Your body will be ordered out of the ground to appear before God and you will give an account for all the deeds that you have done. And as you stand in the very presence of God, knowing that you are morally crooked, you would be just like Mephibosheth, fearing death, knowing that you deserve nothing except to be executed. Because just like he is of the house of Saul, whether he liked it or not, you are a child of Adam, whether you like it or not, and you are guilty in Adam. You deserve nothing but his judgment. And so like him, the only hope and option that we have is to fall on your face and hope and pray that the king will show you mercy. So back to the story. There you are groveling on your face, Mephibosheth. He says, Mephibosheth. You say, here am I, I'm your servant. And then the next words he says in verse 7. Do not fear. Do not fear. Well, you must know. I'm pretty afraid right now. Do not fear. Because I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table Don't fear, he says, because I will show you kindness. David has not been thinking about how to wipe out the house of Saul, but how to show kindness to someone in the house of Saul. And you, as an Israelite, you would know what this word means. 
What he says is, verse 3, is the kindness of God. You know about the kindness of God. You've heard about it through Moses. Because God told Moses to proclaim the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, which is the word for kindness. Steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity for thousands to the thousandth generation. This is the word that God wanted Moses to proclaim about himself. That God was a kind God, or a merciful God, or a loving kindness of God, or the faithfulness of God, or Maybe the way to best summarize it is to say it's the covenant loyalty of God. This is what Ruth asked Boaz to show him. Show me kindness. Show me loyalty to the covenants. Because Ruth wanted to enter into the, uh, the people of Israel. So he need, she needed the, the covenant loyalty of Boaz. This is what this word kindness means. David wants to show the covenant loyalty, kindness of God to this man, you, named Mephibosheth. And why does he want to show this? Well, he says, it is for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And so when he says that, your mind goes back, you remember. Okay, I remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. When King David was running for his life and he knew that uh, Saul was going to kill him, Saul's son Jonathan intervened to try to protect David and he saved David's life. And so then David and Jonathan made a covenant. They became best friends. They loved each other as friends. And so in 1 Samuel 20 verse 15, Jonathan said to David, if I die, do not cut off your steadfast love. This is the word, kindness. Do not cut off your kindness, steadfast love, from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So, David, when you become king and you get rid of all your enemies, make sure you don't kill off my house, the house of Jonathan. And then it says, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as, his, as he loved his own soul. So David swore an oath. He made a covenant with his good friend, Jonathan. And now David is keeping the covenant. So we see here David's covenant loyalty, his heart of kindness, mercy, steadfast love, the kindness of God. When he said in verse 1, is there anyone left? He wasn't thinking about Mephibosheth. It's not that he really liked you, Mephibosheth that you had gotten on his good side, that there were some good things about you that would, that would make David care about you. No. David wanted to keep his covenant. 
And because you are in the covenant, David shows kindness to you. So we can pause again at this point in the story and we can see how King David points us to the son of David, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Messiah. It's as if he says, is there anyone left so that I can show the kindness, the loving kindness of God to him? This is Jesus' heart. Love. Steadfast love, abounding love, kindness, and covenant loyalty to his people. Jesus, and as he was on earth, he moved toward the cripples so that he could heal the cripples. He moved towards the sinners so that he could eat and drink with them so that they could know his kindness and salvation. He goes to the well in the middle of the day when he knows a Samaritan woman is going to be there in her great shame all alone because it is that kind of woman who is ashamed of herself and ashamed to society that Jesus wants to seek after. He comes to seek and save the lost. It is the lost sheep that he goes after because his heart of compassion and kindness and love and loyalty to his covenant drives him to seek after those people. And Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And the new covenant is the fruits of a covenant of redemption that was made between father and son and spirit from eternity past and so in a sense we could say that god the father would would be like jonathan in this story where the father says to the son i have children that i want to save i don't want my children to die so swear to me make an oath to me that you will not allow my children to be cut off And the son swears in the covenant to keep his covenant and says, yes, father, I will accomplish what you desire for me to accomplish. And so the son of God comes to earth. And as he is on earth, he is saying, father, who is it? Who's left? Who of all these crowds do you want me to show my covenant love to for the sake of the covenant that we have made from eternity? Who should I go after? Who should I talk to today? Who should I heal today so that I may show your covenant love? And so the king of David comes and lays down his life to rescue his covenant people. So we go back to the story. And you're Mephibosheth. David says he'll show you kindness. So what does that mean? What is he going to do? Well, he says in verse 7, I'm going to restore to you all the land of Saul, and you shall eat at my table always. So you are going to get all of the king's inheritance, all of his estate, all of his land. This is what is promised to you, and you get to eat at his table. And so your response, verse 8, again, is to pay homage, bow down, grovel even more, and say, I don't deserve this. Who am I? What is your servant that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I? Now, kids, if you don't know, uh, dogs in Bible times are not a good thing. People didn't like dogs back then. Dogs were gross. They ate trash, they had fleas and all kinds of diseases. Uh, 
So back then, if you, if you were not good for food as an animal, you, they won't want anything to do with you. And dogs were not good for food back then, so dogs were kicked out to the trash heap and they can eat the trash over there. So, so kids, don't think, uh, who am I, the little fluffy, clean, shampooed white dog? This is not what Mephibosheth means. It'd be more like today saying, who am I but such a sewer rat? Nobody wants to eat a sewer rat. Nobody wants a sewer rat for a pet. Then he doesn't just say, who am I? I'm a dog. He says, I'm a dead dog. That's even more gross. I'm a dead sewer rat. That's disgusting. Who wants to be around a dead sewer rat? Who wants a dead sewer rat coming to their table? Nobody. But this is what he says about himself. Who am I? To come to the table. I'm a dead dog. You remember maybe in Matthew, there's a Canaanite woman who said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs get the crumbs under the table. And Jesus looked at her and he said, Woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. Why was her faith great? Well, partly because she saw herself as a dog. A dog who had no right to eat at the table, but who just wanted a few crumbs that would fall off. And Jesus is saying, this is the type of person who I want to show covenant loyalty to. The type of person who knows they don't deserve to come to the table Jesus is very harsh towards Pharisees who think that they are righteous, who deny their sin, who pretend that they have their life together. Jesus rather would eat food with the sinners and the tax collectors because he knows he's coming to call sinners to repentance. And Mephibosheth says, I, I don't deserve to eat at your table. I don't deserve to be treated like this. I don't deserve the inheritance of of Saul, and David knows that. And David calls him to eat at the table. So we come back to the story. As Mephibosheth recognizes his unworthiness, then in verse 9, the king calls Ziba. And says, all that belong to Saul, all his house I've given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And the story says, and Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And so here's the order. It's, it's put into effect you, Mephibosheth, you get everything that belongs to Saul. Uh, you have Ziba, the steward, to take care of you the rest of your life. And, and Ziba has himself 15 sons and 20 servants. And they are all here to serve you, the lowest of the low, the useless of society. You are now going to essentially be treated, physically, materially speaking, as King Saul was treated. You will have all the riches that Saul had. And you will have all the service as if you were like King Saul. You have Ziba now serving you. 
They're going to work the land for you because you can't do any work, but they're not going to just bring it to you in Lodabar. They're going to farm the land, and they're going to bring all their food over to Jerusalem, to David's house, and you are going to eat at David's table. You will eat with the king. And so you and your son, Micah, you move into David's house, and Ziba is your servant. And so here's the focus of the story. Notice how many times the writer of this story mentions that Mephibosheth eats at the king's table. Four times. He says it in verse 7, You shall eat at my table always. Verse 10, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Speaking to Ziba. In verse 11, it says, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. And then the story is summarized. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. This is what the writer wants us to focus on and understand. This is the great blessing, eating at the king's table. Now think about this. Do you ever see the president of the United States inviting homeless men over to the White House to eat dinner with him? Do you ever hear of Steven Spielberg having a big meeting with the studio executives? And so he says, you know who I'm going to invite to my big dinner with these execs? I'm going to go to Los Angeles on the corner. I'm going to get some drug dealers and I'm going to bring them to my house and they'll eat at my table with me as we hobnob with the rich studio guys. You think the Wall Street guys Say, hey, let's get lunch. Let's go over to the trailer park and see if we can have lunch with someone living in the trailer park today. People don't do that. And it would have been the same for people like King David. King David would invite kings from all over the world, generals, powerful people, the wealthy people in society, over to his house for dinner. And when you invite over people to your palace, you put out the finest foods, You have the finest plates, the goblets of silver and gold. You put on your finest dress. You make sure everyone in your family is dressed properly and acts properly and respectfully and has all this etiquette because you don't want to appear uh, less respectable in front of these great and powerful people. It would have been unthinkable for a king to have at his table a cripple. And he's not even in his own family. But David makes this invitation. David has the idea. Nobody forces him to do this. David wants the cripple to eat at his table. He's not ashamed to eat with Mephibosheth because of his loyalty to the covenant he made with Jonathan. And so it is for us today. We have a king who is not ashamed to eat with us. He is not ashamed to be seen with you. He invites you. He bids you to come. He wants you to come. 
He wants to give you this privilege to eat at the king's table as if you are one of the king's sons. You who are the cripple. You who expect and deserve nothing but execution from this king. You who are of the house of the enemy. Your father and grandfather. You are the one who hears the king say, you shall eat at my table always. This is what our king invites us to. On the last night of his life, Jesus the king, he had a dinner. He invited to this dinner those who would be the foundation of the people of the new covenant. They were his covenant people. They were crooked. They were sinners. They had many sins. But of the 11 of those new covenant people, he wanted to eat with them to show his kindness and his loyalty to his covenant. And so Jesus says in Luke 22, verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. On the last night of his life, what Jesus wanted to do earnestly is eat with his people. Eat with sinners for the sake of his covenant. Because he was making a covenant with them when he says, this cup that I hold before you is the new covenant in my blood. He was having a meal with them that itself would actually signify his covenant loyalty to them, his people. It was through the blood that he was about to shed that he was going to ratify this covenant, put it into place. The blood would pay for the sins of those who would be his people. The blood would pay for the disloyalty. The blood would heal the crookedness of our sinful hearts. And Jesus wanted to eat a meal to signify that he wanted to enter into covenant with his people. He wants you to eat at his table and drink the cup and eat the bread to remember his covenant faithfulness to you, his covenant people. And so now he has given us a table. We call this today the Lord's Supper. We call it the Lord's Table. It's given to the church of Christ. It's given to those who are outwardly and visibly belonging to the new covenant people of God, which is each local church. This is who this meal is for. And Jesus invites us to come and eat with him in the presence of the king. And so we sit down at the table. We sit down in our seats and food is passed out to us by the servants of the king. And the host of this meal is Jesus. And we get to eat with him. Not only do we get this table, but this table that we get to come to today points us to an even bigger table. Because Revelation 19 says that one day we will all be gathered in Christ. We who are in Christ we will be gathered to the wedding banquet of the Lamb. We will be in the physical presence of Jesus the King. And we will come and eat at that table forever and ever. And so this table today is for those who right now are part of the church of Christ. 
members of his church. But even if you can't come to this particular table today, what you need to worry about is the bigger table coming later. What you need to concern yourself is will you be at the wedding banquet on the king's wedding day when he celebrates his marriage with his bride? Will you be there? What does it take to be there? It takes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance of your sins and trusting in him and giving your life to following him. Jesus says that in a parable, he invites people to come to the wedding banquet. The king invites people and people have many excuses not to come. What are your excuses? Why won't you be at the wedding banquet on that day? You say, well, I'm too crippled. I can't bring myself to the table. Jesus says, I invite and I want the cripples to come to me. It is the crippled. It is the sinner. It is the one who feels his need of Christ and a Savior that Jesus invites to come to him. So do you recognize your sin? Do you recognize that there is nothing you can do to fix yourself? You can't change your sin problem. Do you recognize that Christ is your only hope? Because of the blood that makes the new covenant. If Christ is your only hope, then accept his orders to come to the table. Not necessarily to this small table today, but to be ready for that wedding feast on the last great day. Come to Jesus Christ. There's one more part of the story. Maybe you've noticed that we haven't mentioned this yet. Look at the very last words in verse 13. The writer says, Now he was lame in both his feet. You might think, what a downer. Why why end the story like that? Why not end the story? He ate always at the king's table, happily ever after. But he ends. Now, just in case you forgot, remember, he was lame in both his feet. He wants to highlight this fact about Mephibosheth. He was still a cripple. To remind you that every day that Mephibosheth came to the table, he was undeserving. Every meal at the table is a gift, grace, covenant, loyalty. Every meal at the table, Mephibosheth would probably have to be carried. And he would remember it is only because of the loyalty of the covenant king that I'm able to eat this meal. And it's a reminder to you and me today that Every meal that we come to at this table is by grace alone. We still have our sin, even though we're new in Christ. We are still sinners. We don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve to eat at the table. But every time we come, it's because of God's grace. And as we live this life out here on earth, we continue to feel effects of the fall We continue to feel things like physical 
lameness being crippled and physical sickness and and problems on this earth, it reminds us that we still battle with the fall in this world. Mephibosheth wasn't healed. He continued to be a cripple the rest of his life. So we're still haunted by guilt and shame. We're still the cripple. We still have nothing good to bring. But our story will end differently than this story. Our story, one day, we will be on our deathbeds. And one day we will cross over into another world. One day the servants of the king, his angels, will gather your crippled body. They will gather your crippled, sin-sick soul. They will bring your soul to the heavenly feast, to the great wedding banquet. You will be carried into heaven with one day the promise that your body will be resurrected from the ground. One day you will be made whole. One day you will not be a physical cripple. You will not feel physical pain. And as soon as you die, your soul will feel no more effects of sin. One day, we will come to the great banquet feast in the presence of the king. We will know it's all his grace, all his kindness for the sake of his covenant. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we have nothing in our hands to bring. Simply to your cross we cling. Thank you that every grace is abounding towards us, the chief of sinners, through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are full of grace and truth. Help us now as we come to your table to know your presence with us and to feast with you to be filled up overflowing with more and more grace from you we pray in your name